funny. Medicine, as it's portrayed in the media, I think uh, is much more um, sci-fi than it is in real life. Much more. Grey's Anatomy? Yeah. Yeah, much more great. Yeah. And it's not always like that, in, in especially public medicine. Um, but yet, you know, we do rely on a large amount of technology. We take it for granted. You're right in that surgical training is is a lot about um, becoming more conservative with your thinking and and accepting risk, but also planning and, and um, getting ahead of the risk to understand the failure points. But it really, it's about trying to do things the accepted way, the gold standard way, the standard of care. We talk a lot about that in surgery. And that has to do with patient outcomes and safety and, and liability and those sorts of issues. But um, what I started to realize, and I think a lot of residents do, and I'll talk a bit about, more about my surgical innovation week in a minute, but a lot of residents see obvious gaps and obvious problems, things that could be solved with simple solutions. Breathing. If babies can do it, why can't machines do it? Thoughts, Dr. Haas? I think they can. You think they can? Okay. Welcome to Physician Founded, a series where we chat with physician founders who are shaping the future of medical technology and healthcare. My name is Jeff, and our guest today is the unparalleled Dr. Harvey Haas, trauma surgeon, humanitarian, innovator, software engineer, founder, and CMO of Learning Health System Labs, and so, so much more. Harvey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? It's uh, it's a busy day. Hay fever is just really getting to me right now. I've like popped a loratadine already, but it, it's it's not touching it. Um, I'm in severe distress. Uh, but um, we've we've chatted a little offline about your background, and like there's there's so much to get into in terms of who you are overall. So I I, I really don't know where to start. But maybe a good place to say uh, a good thing to say would be that you didn't take the straight path into medicine like I did, or like many others do. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you ended up in trauma surgery or why you chose that path? Sure. Um, actually, I think I, I did my medical school at the uh, University of Calgary, uh, and it was a pretty progressive program there. A lot of my colleagues didn't take the straight path uh, to medical school. And I think that's probably the reason why I got in there, but I certainly didn't. Um, I knew I wanted to be a trauma surgeon before, uh, I entered university, I think, um, as I told you before, I had a lot of, uh, late night jobs, just roadies for vans or, you know, jobs that were sort of out of business hours. And unfortunately also the hours where drunk people were driving on roads and, uh, I managed to be, uh, the first on scene for a few sort of big crashes at, um, really didn't know what to do at the time before cell phones. It was not like he just pulled the phone out and called 911. Um, I, I didn't know where to go, how to help. You know, these people were sort of dazed and confused and I just, I hated that feeling of helplessness. So I vowed that uh, I wouldn't allow that to happen. If I, if there was a way to learn how to, to fix them, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, so that was sort of the, the first thing that sparked my imagination. I mean, I, I'd watched all the sort of the war, like the mashes, TV shows and things like that. So I, I kind of knew that I kind of wanted to be a war surgeon, but I, um, I thought it was cool, but I also thought a lot of other things were cool. And, uh, it wasn't until I started seeing injured patients that I knew I wanted to help them. 
I guess just as a quick response to that, why not go with the military route then? Yeah, I uh, I had the opportunity and the opportunity still exists. Um, I I guess it's a philosophical choice. I'm, I'm more of a humanitarian and not to say that there aren't humanitarians in the military. I know several, um, but for me, the, uh, the non-military aspect of it is where I want to intervene the most. Uh, most injury, in fact, comes uh, from outside military settings. So Unfortunately, what we're seeing now is going to change that, but, um, certainly for the vast majority of the earth on a day-to-day -day basis, they're not more time situations. And I, I think I can have more impact there. We talked a little bit about your non-street line route. Um, you, you did a little software engineering, was it? how did you get there? And how did that lead to, I guess, your further education before medical school? Because I mean, it's certainly really a not traditional like four-year undergrad then medical school route that, right. that you went down? Um, I guess I wasn't good as a traditional student. Um, but when I was young, it, this would have been the early 80s, very early 80s. Uh, my dad was working in the field where they were just starting to use computers uh, and writing software at work. And uh, I remember he brought home the first home computer or one of the first home computers uh, in the early 80s. And... Um, it was a Franklin 2E, I think. It was an Apple clone way, way back then before Apple would sue you for cloning them. And uh, I remember setting it up and just, you know, it was looked like part like a TV and part like a typewriter, and I had no clue what to do with it. Um, I remember turning it on and seeing the little uh, prompt uh, at the front, and I, had, I typed things in, nothing happened. It just didn't speak my language. But I had a family friend who was in high school uh, at the time, and I was probably, oh, in grade three. Um, and he could code. He could make this machine do things. And I remember just being enthralled with that. So I would just watch him code things. He'd come over because we had one of the only ones in the neighborhood and uh, just make it do things. Um, and I remember being really amazed by this language that you could use to control a machine. Uh, and then I started thinking, my first attempts were like, I think probably a lot of people learn how to code games or graphics or something, um, cause it's fun. Uh, but I really started thinking about how to solve problems with this, even at that age. And I remember I was at school in elementary school and I was leaving and my teacher was staying and, uh, she was doing the grades, like the report cards for everybody by hand. And I remember thinking, I know how to do that on a computer, um, and I could write a little, I guess we didn't call them applications back then, but I could write something that she could use to do that. So she wouldn't have to sit there all the time. So I wrote something for them. I think I still have the, the code for it. Um, and I gave it to them and I, and she was so, I guess, thankful, but also surprised that this machine, which they didn't even have yet, uh, could do this. And so I, I don't know if they ever went on and bought it, used my software, but that was my first attempt to write software. Uh, and in fact, I think in real life, probably not that many people have used my software anyway, but, um, that idea of using technology to solve problems that was sparked right there, I think. Mm -hmm. And then you, you mentioned that you initially didn't necessarily have the grades to get into med school, but you went on to do a degree in pulmonary medicine. Was there any particular impetus towards this path and did that spark your interest? or I guess revive your chances of going into medicine? Yes. <laughs> so uh, I went through sort of 
middle school, uh, not, you know, doing okay in, in high school, finished strong, uh, to the point where I had a full, I guess what you call a full ride scholarship to the first year of university. And, and, um, things were looking good. Uh, at that point I was really thinking about physics or medicine. Uh, um, and I got through my first year with fairly good marks. And I remember, uh, sitting with my physics prof, uh, had a meeting with him and just said, you know, I'm really, these are the two things I'm thinking of. Uh, and, uh, he said, well, you need to think long and hard because they're very different and they have very different trajectories. And, um, I liked the, the mental challenge of physics, uh, but I also liked helping people and it ultimately was helping people that want out. Uh, and just looking at the life of a surgeon versus the life of a physics professor. Um, I just like more of the excitement. I like more of the behind the scenes nature of things where I could go where people couldn't go. That, that really appeals to me. Um, well, that was the choice then, but then I didn't do so well in university. It's a lot of people that come out of high school and, uh, that, that dream kind of faded. And then I thought, well, uh, maybe I'll go work, uh, in the oil fields or something. And I did that for a while, uh, and, um, did not fit in, um, and, you know, it was great to have that much money and cash. And it was actually nice to be working with my hands, but it was dangerous work. And, um, a lot of my, uh, coworkers got injured. I had an old driller up there who pulled me aside, uh, north of Alberta. And basically he said, you know, you don't, you're not like one of these people here you have the ability to go and do something more with your life. Um, so why don't you do that? Because I missed that opportunity, you know, 10 or 15 years ago and I live in a van by the, by the drill rig. And he said, you can do something else with your life. So go do it. And so essentially he sent me away. Um, and I went back to university and, and sort of with a new vision that, yeah, I can do something more. And then my grades turned around. Then medicine started to become an option for me. But to get there, <laughs> I had to do graduate school first. Um, and I stumbled into graduate school because of my programming ability that I'd had as a kid. So they were, the lab was looking for a software developer. I hadn't really done much since I was a kid, but I knew I could solve problems. So I took that job that got me into the lab as a master's student in pulmonary mechanics. That's got my degree. All right. So you took that degree, got into med school, and then you went into trauma surgery, or you did general surgery first at U of A, I believe. Um, yeah. How did that lead down the path to medical innovation? Because you, you've had that, you know, problem solving mindset, but to combine the two um, in a field that, I mean, can be conservative uh, at times, isn't necessarily that springs out as the most obvious thing for everyone. Yeah. Um, Funny medicine, as it's portrayed in the media, I think, uh, is much more, um, sci-fi than it is in real life. Much more. Grey's Anatomy? Yeah. Yeah. Much portrayed. Yeah. And it's not always like that. And it's especially public medicine. Um, but yet, you know, we do rely on a large amount of technology and we take it for granted. You're right in that surgical training is, is a lot about um, becoming more conservative with your thinking and, and accepting risk, but also planning and, and, um, getting ahead of the risk to understand the failure points. But it really, it's about trying to do things the accepted way, the gold standard way, the standard of care. We talk a lot about that in surgery and that has to do with patient outcomes and safety and, and liability and those sorts of issues. But, um, 
what I started to realize, and I think a lot of residents do, and I'll talk a bit about more about my surgical innovation week in a minute, but a lot of residents see obvious gaps and obvious problems, things that could be solved with simple solutions, but they're not really given the chance or the support to do that. And certainly I started to see things that I would do differently if it was my medical profession, but as a resident, it wasn't, I was learning the standard of care. Um, and it really wasn't until I finished all of my training and went overseas and started seeing those same problems repeated everywhere. Yet overseas, the, the impact of the problems are magnified because they're resource constrained. Um, that's really when it sparked in me that I could actually use technology and problem solving and design thinking to actually impact lives. That was the, the cool part for me. Mm -hmm. Could you, well, I mean, th there are two questions that kind of stem out of that. I think that there's kind of a double-edged sword to being a learner in a medical setting because your eyes are fresh. So you can see the issues that people have become acclimatized to and have accepted as part of the system. But at the same time, there is a hierarchy within medicine. So to be able to navigate around that is difficult for residents. So could you tell us a little bit about the Surgical Innovation Week and how you build up the skills and the confidence of uh, surgical learners to address some of these issues because they can spot issues that others might have blind spots to after they're immersed for a long time. Yeah. And, and to take that a little further, I think people are coming into medicine, either two streams, the traditional stream where you, you go straight through, you get great marks and you go straight into medicine. But there's a, a fair number of people that have had careers before they're nurses or engineers or teachers, or whatever. Uh, and so people come in with different mindsets and different abilities. You know, some of the main, I call the mainstream people that get into medicine never even had a job, you know, didn't work at McDonald's, didn't do anything because they're so busy studying and getting into medicine. Um, and they come to medicine, especially the, the work part of medicine with a, uh, almost a naive attitude of what it's like to work in any industry. Whereas the people that come with, you know, industry experience, they come with a very different mindset. They get what it means to work and have that hierarchy and how to fit into that hierarchy much sooner. Um, and they're used to problem solving a little bit more because they've had to work independently. The traditional path to medicine, I think, um, certainly in the COVID area, uh, you don't interact with as many people. Uh, and I think that's a little bit, uh, it's going to be a little bit dangerous. So when I saw residents, uh, come to me, uh, over the years and you know, seeing that I'm doing some problem solving stuff, which is totally out of, like we said, out of character for a resident or for a staff, um, they were interested and they wanted to participate and they started coming to me with problems that they wanted to solve with no clue, even how to get started or what that meant to solve a problem. Just like you say, how do you, how do you take an idea and get it into a healthcare setting? What does that pathway look like? And, and so, um. I found myself answering the same questions over and over again. When I finally ended up in, in uh, Vancouver, uh, UBC general surgery, um, I had colleagues that were very much in the innovative mindset. Some of my colleagues have started companies, actually many of them to solve problems. And so there's a, there's sort of a core group of us that are used to this. Uh, and we decided that we would start uh, this innovation week and the innovation week uh, was born of the idea that we teach residents how to do academic research that's mandated actually by the Royal College of Canada and by every other major training college around the world. But 
residents need to learn how to do studies, interpret studies, use study results to, to inform best practice. But they're never really taught how to solve problems. And they're different things. Uh, academic research gives you knowledge, and that, that adds to the growing mountain of knowledge that we have in medicine. It's growing faster and faster. But it doesn't really teach you how to apply that knowledge to a problem to get an outcome that you want. And, and that's a gap that's uniform across, you know, 99% of training programs. Uh, and just, it's just been recently, especially during COVID, that people are starting to think about that differently. And so we started Innovation Week um, with the, the goal of taking the second year residents out of training for a whole week, which is, doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you, when you understand surgical training, that's a massive event, um, has massive impacts on service and training and education and, and getting the program, the surgical training program convinced that this was worthwhile, took some doing, but we managed to do it. Uh, and we give them uh, a full intensive workshop day in, day out of design thinking, problem solving skills, and we actually give them problems to solve. Um, and this then a second year now, and the results have been pretty impressive. We timed it at second year because in your third year, you can decide to try and apply for a funded year off to do something else like academic research or now innovation. Uh, and we found that, um, most of our students did take time. Many of them have, have applied and are working or are in big U S innovative schools like Hopkins or Stanford, things like that. Um, I've actually started two or three companies based on some of the projects that have come out of this. Um, we've landed, uh, you know, large amounts of grants in the last couple of years because of this. So it's having an impact and there's this natural drive to solve problems and as surgeons, I think more, more so surgeons than other specialties, because we typically use our hands and our brains to, to solve problems. Um, so it's been really, really exciting. Uh, and I think probably it's going to be a mainstay and Interestingly, the new round of medical students that applied to UBC surgery this year, uh, every one of them said that they chose our program in part because we offer that surgical innovation week. And so I think it's, it's the new paradigm, I think, in medicine. And I'm super excited about it. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, like, honestly, if I could just reapply to, to, to specialties, that would definitely be at the top of my mind. I guess pivoting a little bit to your work after your trauma fellowship, what you did at U of Texas, I believe, which had like enormous, I guess, resources early on in terms of uh, 3D printing to solve issues in clinic. For example, like you mentioned before, you ended up doing a stint uh, with Doctors Without Borders as well as IC's uh, change overall. You mentioned that there was an inciting moment or campaign there um, that really changed your mind as to how technology can be used in humanitarian way. Could you tell the listeners that story? Cause I, I find it fascinating. Sure. So I, I finished my training, uh, at the largest trauma center in the world. Um, and, you know, the craziest things happened there. We were seeing more injured patients than, than were going on in all the war zones combined across the world at the time at one hospital. Um, and. I walked out of that feeling like I could do anything clinically. I knew how to help people on a one-to-one -one basis, but I didn't know how to help large numbers of people. And so some of my colleagues had joined MSF, some of them had joined ICRC, uh, and I'd, I'd spent some time with MSF and going through the training programs and was uh, about to deploy uh, in Syria at that point. And I, you know, that got canceled for 
safety reasons. And then I went around the world on my own and, um, basically, you know, totally naive. Um, and nowadays probably not something I would recommend, uh, from a, uh, post-colonial global surgery and like a white guy going in and knocking on doors and telling them how to solve problems. It's not the approach I would recommend to people doing global <laughs> surgery. Um, but it certainly opened my eyes to some, some problems. And, um, I was in the South Pacific at the time, um, and sort of got to know the, the entirety of the surgical department there that I was touring around hospitals and just seeing, uh, what the challenges were. Cause they're so much different than where I had trained, not so much different than rural, say Canada, like really remote rural Canada, but certainly different than the big cities. Um, and I remember uh, I was at a smaller hospital, probably the third largest hospital on, on the North Island, Fiji, and, uh, they had just received a donation from a big American university of some laparoscopic equipment. And that was the first laparoscopic equipment in the, in the country and laparoscopic equipment allows you to change the way you do surgery. Um, it's now called minimally invasive surgery. A lot of surgeries that you'd be in hospital for a few days for, you could be in hospital for a few hours for. And, um, for example, one of the most common surgeries that are done gallbladder surgery, uh, it's been done laparoscopically in, in North America for 25 years, but it had never been done that way in Fiji, except in some of the private hospitals. And so it was a real opportunity to change, you know, the, the surgical burden of disease in that country. There's only, there was at the time only 10 functioning ORs in the entire country. Um, and if you could add this technology and this technique there, you could actually greatly improve the number of patients that can get help. So they're really excited about having this equipment. I was excited about uh, helping them set it up because I do laparoscopic surgery. Uh, and there was another surgeon there, I think from Mongolia that does laparoscopic surgery. And we're going through and unpackaging the equipment and quickly realized that a, it was old, outdated equipment. So obviously they was discarded equipment that got donated, which is quite common and unfortunate. Uh, but B, they were missing some pieces, uh, and the pieces themselves were small and not very complicated. They're like connectors, things like that. Um, but to source them would require the hospital to get a large contract service contract with the manufacturer and they couldn't afford that. Uh, and I started thinking of that time, like just sort of dabbling with 3d printing and thinking we could actually just 3d print these things. Uh, and that would allow them to have this surgical option. What really happened was it just sort of fizzled and died. And I think ultimately it did start it after I left, but it certainly delayed things and it made me realize that the Western paradigm of surgical equipment, especially the complex surgical equipment doesn't apply in most of the world. And the inability of large corporations, medical device corporations to, um, want to play in that market, to want to really help people in those markets. There's a billion, uh, well, there's 5 billion people on the planet that need access to surgeons that don't have it currently which is a huge market. If you think about it, there's 140 million, at least new surgeries every year that need to be done to bring the whole globe up to a standard of care that we would call acceptable. So that's 140 million surgeons, surgeries per year where you could apply and sell surgical equipment and devices to. And so far, most of the large manufacturers haven't been willing to get into that market. 
there's not clear distribution channels. The pricing models don't fit. Service contracts don't, you know, apply there. Um, the equipment actually isn't designed for those hot and humid environments most of the time. And so it's a big gap. Uh, and I started thinking, well, we could just change the way we do that. We could democratize medical device creation so that we could make equipment for the people that need it the most and that 5 billion people. And so that, that was when the switch flipped for me. And I started one of my company's metric technologies to look at and explore that market, how to, how to devise new things for that market. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time, bye-bye.